go to the slide, uh, go to that slide with that, the, Crest, the Crestmont slide. I think I told you last week, this building will be shut down in like September-ish. They're going to remodel the whole building. It takes a year to do that. They've already offered, the boys and girls have offered us, if we want to, to meet in their new Crestmont facility. This is the new facility they're building. The gymnasium on the right has just had the walls up and stuff like that. So um, that, that seems like, I'm just saying that because we don't know all the timetable yet, and we're kind of at the mercy of their construction schedule. We could always move back in here after this building is... They're going to remodel this one and add on a little bit to the side. Sorry, no parking garages. So I, th I asked, well, can you build a parking garage? No, we can't do that. Um, but if you know where, you know, Crestmont, it's, in his, it's historically a kind of a low-income neighborhood, so this building will likely become even more of a community center and not just a boys and girls club. It makes sense that we're going to move into, that's where we're going to go, but I, I'm always reminded of a story in the Old Testament where Joshua and some leaders made a decision that made sense to them, but then the Bible says, but they forgot to inquire of the Lord. They didn't ask. They just assumed this makes sense to us. So that's kind of, we've talked about it in the elder, with the elder team. It makes sense is what we're going to do, but we don't know. And maybe God has other plans for us, but this looks likely where we're going to be moving into uh, uh, on, on the weekends on, uh, in the fall. So drive by there. It's, it's just it, uh, the building, the part, the part that's already done is really done really nicely. And uh, I've, I've just wondered if maybe God wants us in that neighborhood for a year for a reason. Um, again, you've, if you've been in Bloomington, you know that neighborhood often has a reputation for being kind of, kind of, you know, just a tough neighborhood or a lot of federal housing. So maybe God wants us there, and that's what we're trying to decide. So you'll hear more about that in the months to come as things unpack with that. So another thing, too, go to this next slide. One of the things we say, one of the kind of baseline values of Exodus Church is we will practice supportive speech and actions toward all other Christ-centered churches in Bloomington. And I have on there logos. I think, I think all of these churches of logos I have on there, I've, uh, I've either met, the, I think I've, I met all the pastors. And whenever I meet a pastor for the first time, we send his wife a $50 gift card. We, the church, on behalf of the church, send his wife a $50 gift card to some restaurant in Bloomington. So um, we do that because we believe that we're not the only church in Bloomington that's kind of like the Armada at Normandy. Jesus needs all of us. So uh, the next slide. So like I met just recently, Pastor, I met him before, but Jeff and Leanne Hauersberger, who happens to be the parents of Natalie over here. Um, he's pa yeah, he pastors uh, Little Union uh, Baptist Church. Um, he's been there. I just I had coffee with him a couple weeks ago, but how long has he been there? A few months? A few months. So on the back on the way out, there's a card that I want anybody who wants to sign it to his wife, because I always tell the wife, I think their job's sometimes harder than the husband's job, and it, they, but they also have a role in bringing the influence of Jesus to Bloomington, and then I, I include a gift card in with that. So I just wanted you to know that we've done that for years, because um, we believe that every church in Bloomington who honors Jesus is a necessary part of what Jesus wants to do. So there's a, on the way out, there's a card. Just sign it. I've got uh, a gift card already purchased, and um, so I sent it up to Leanne. So uh, actually, let me pray for them, and then we'll open God's Word. But God, we, uh, most of us haven't even met Jeff or Leanne, um, but we, you called them here, and most of us don't even know where Little Union Baptist Church is. But for some reason, God, that's an outpost for what you want to accomplish in Bloomington. So we pray a blessing over Jeff and over Leanne, over their children, um, and over that church, 
We pray that your spirit would have his way at that church and you would pour out abundant peace and joy. And through that church, uh, others would come to know Jesus as a personal friend and uh, just pray that the influence of Jesus will increase because of Jeff and Leanne being in Bloomington. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. So anyway, on the way out, sign that if you would. Um, okay, uh, topic of the day is let's start with the symbols. All right, first one is this. This is the, what do you call, what do you call that when you see that? Okay, it's the at sign. It was originally, and I hope Wikipedia is right on all this stuff because I, I love reading Wikipedia. It was originally uh, an accounting symbol that if you were selling something like, you know, if you were selling five widgets, it'd be five widgets at $5 a piece. And that was an accounting annotation. It was from the 1800s. It first showed up, that symbol first showed up on a typewriter in 1900. All right? But when we see that symbol, we know what it means. And of course, nobody had any idea it would have huge impact on email addresses like it does today. All right, next symbol. All right, we know this one is pi. Anybody know 3.1415? No, 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 whatever. So it's the, it's the, it is the, uh, it's the representation of the ratio of the circumference of a circle and the diameter. Some of you get kind of freaked out when I say anything mathematics, so just calm down. But, and uh, it comes from the Greek word, uh, the Greek word perimaros, uh, which is the word for the circumference of a circle, kind of like perimeter, but it's circumference of a circle. So that's why you use symbol pi, and it's been used since the middle 1700s as a mathematical symbol. But, you know, these symbols all mean something. Next symbol. All right. What do you call this? Hashtag if you're probably 20 and under. The rest of us call it a pound sign or a number sign or the tic-tac-toe sign. All right. Um, first appeared on a typewriter in 1886, and it was first used kind of as pound. It actually, they think that this symbol actually comes from a Latin term meaning by the pound, and that, that symbol kind of evolved from that. Now, of course, it has something to do with hashtags, and which I have, still have no idea what those mean. But that's what, so that, but that symbol, it means something now. It meant something 100 years ago. It doesn't, it's different now. This next symbol, let's see if anybody knows this one. This symbol is the artist formerly known as Prince. Uh, in 1990s, he got upset with his record uh, label, Warner Brothers. And in protest, he changed his name legally to a symbol. And they said when the press told him they didn't know how to report about him, he gave them permission to call him the artist formerly known as Prince, because there's no name for that symbol, all right? Anyway, so symbols. Last symbol. What is it? Anybody know what this symbol is? Okay, it's a delta. Uh, very good. It's the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet. And again, this comes from my math kind of obsession. But delta is the, fir the first letter in the Greek word that means difference or change. So delta, and you're going to see a lot of this in the next few weeks, delta is the symbol for change. So go to the next. So I'm starting a series today, and the series is just called Change. If I could name the series the, the delta symbol, I would just do that, but then I feel like I'm too much like Prince, and I don't want to be that, all right? So change. Um, because and I, what I, the subtitle is Becoming the Life-Giving People Jesus Knows We Can Be change. You know, in mathematics, you talk about if you 
change of this over the change of that and change, change. We always, how things change. And let me tell you where this series comes from because it just kind of came in the last week or so. Go to the next slide because I showed this slide. Uh, uh, go to the one that has, keep going forward. I'm sorry, I didn't, keep going, keep going, keep going. Sorry. One more, keep going. I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll go to the next one, next one, next one. This is it. All right, it starts with this. Then we're going to back up in a second here. I had this up here last week. It was the different things Jesus said we could do and should do. You know, we can be the kind of people who love our enemies, don't judge others, forgive others, don't be afraid, don't worry, go and be reconciled, give to those in need, love one another. Jesus said these are the things we ought to be doing. And then I was having a conversation with my wife about this afterwards we were talking about it. She goes, but the challenge with that is how do we become those kind of people? You don't become those kind of people simply because I print it out and if I were to pass out to all you, here, this is your job description, go do this. Well, yeah, we know what those mean, but it's, it's hard to be the kind of person who doesn't worry about things. Because right now, that's not where I am. Or it may be hard for you to forgive certain people in your life. Because right, right now, that's not where you are. So how do you change? How does change happen? So if this is who you are now, how do you change to become the kind of person who those things become natural, kind of out-of-your-soul kind of realities? Because if Christianity isn't about change, then it's just simply a, we're just kind of adding one more moralistic list of things you should do. So it came from that, and like, how do we change? So this is going to be a series where we talk about different spiritual, some, some terms we'll call them spiritual disciplines. I'm going to call them spiritual habits. Things you can do, I can do, things the Bible talks about that can put yourself in a situation where God begins to change your character. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about, you know ringing a bell and giving a dog a bone and see if you can get the dog to shake. It's not about changing your behavior. It's changing your character. And out of your, out of your, if your character is changing, your behavior changes. Because, it, again, think of uh, somebody you have a hard time forgiving. I can tell you, you should just forgive them. And you know that's true, but you still would say, it's still hard for me. But how do you cooperate with the Spirit of God in your life so you do things that all of a sudden begin changing you? How does change happen? So now go back five of them there. I'll talk about change again here. Okay, so when I've taught, I've taught, I've taught some education classes at IU, and I use this a lot, and I'll talk about how does somebody change to grow intellectually, grow from big to small? How does change happen? Next one. Uh, how, does, how do people who are black and white in a white back, how do they change where joy is part of their life. How does that change happen? Next one. This is our dog. I had to put this one. So our dog was a puppy X number of weeks ago. I don't know how many pounds she's gained now. 20 pounds. So how did that change happen? Did she wake up one morning and all of a sudden she's different? So the next one, how does that change happen? How does Clark Kent turn into Superman? So the whole idea of change, we know it's part of how we, I mean, change is part of life. But when we think about our spiritual lives, we often don't, either we don't think about it or we don't know if we have any role in change. We think, wrongfully, that showing up to church every Sunday all of a sudden changes us. It's a part of changing it, but I, 
you can come to church every Sunday for your whole lifetime and you may never be able to forgive your enemies in the way you ought to. Or you may never be able to control certain urges that you know are going to lead you to behaviors that will be destructive to you. So we go back to this, go to the next slide now, go back to this. So let me say a couple things about change and then we'll, I'll tell you what we're going to talk about today. So, I hope he doesn't mind me singling him out, but Tom Kelter is a physical therapist, all right? He's a physical therapist I go to. Huh? And his daughter is too. His daughter's next to him too, but Tom's the one I go to. I've had hip replacement, knee replacement. So because of that, I've had problems with my back and things like that. So the question is, how, do the, how does that change? Well, ideally, I'd love just to go into Tom's office. He wave a couple wands over me, and I walk out, and I can run a fast 40-yard dash, all right? Isn't he supposed to do that for me? And you probably said there's patients that want that. They just want you to, you know, do something. Well, but how change happens is Tom gives me exercises to do, more often than not painful ones. Um, I told Tom physical therapists in the Middle Ages were called torturers. Um, but he'll give me a series of exercises to do, certain stretches, and I have to do these sideways planks now and things like that that are hard to do. They're not easy to do. But he says if you do those, change will happen. If you just think about those and appreciate the little piece of paper I give you with the diagrams on it, change will not happen. So I cooperate with his wisdom and insight and do things that help change to happen in my body. And I'm cooperating with the laws of how the body works. Tom knows how the body works. He understands it. So he says, if you do these things, these things will have a pretty significant impact of changing some things in your life, in your body. All right? So we understand that. We understand that if you eat well, things change. If you don't eat well, your body changes and you gain weight or whatever. We understand that there's certain things that we do that can lead to change in our bodies or whatever. But we're talking about this, we're now we're talking about our souls and our characters. And how do you, what things do you do? So in the upcoming weeks, probably the next few months, we're going to talk about things we do like reading the Bible. Again, not as a way to check it off your list on a daily basis, but how, how does reading the Bible lead to change? How does me taking time personally to pray lead to change? What about fasting, going without food for a meal or two? How does that, how in the world does that lead to change? What about the, the discipline or the habit of confession? Confiding in a, in a trusted spiritual friend about issues that, that, are, that are struggling for you right now in terms of things you've gone over the line and you've violated what God wants you to do. Or, or times of silence and solitude. That habit, and how does that habit do, have anything to do with how God brings about change in your life? So again, these are not, this is not going to be about a list of things you should do, and if you do all these things, you earn points with God, and he gives you a better place in heaven. It's no, these are things we do to put ourselves in situations where we cooperate with the laws of how God designed the soul to work, and our souls then become healthier, bigger, fuller in that sense. So spiritual habits, and that's probably the number one challenge of this, is spiritual habits are ways to help you grow to become the person that you've never thought you could be but always thought you should be. So it's not simply, it's not, it's not about a guilt trip. 
It's not about giving you more spiritual practice to do because you feel bad if you don't do it. It's doing things that put you in a situation that you're cooperating with how the soul is wired to work by God and to give you a larger capacity. All right, so here's an analogy I'll start with. And I'll t- All right, so the, I went to Starbucks and got these cups. And I told him what I was doing. He was kind of confused, but that's okay. All right, this cup is small capacity. It's like one of these espresso cups. All right, you get like a little drink. All right, that's, that's the capacity. That's the capacity. It's a short cup. You, can only, you have to order those special if you want one. They don't have them on the menu. Short cup. And I can't remember what the Latin words for these things. Vente, largo, whatever. All right. <laughs> There's all different capacities. All right. Now, your soul, if I can say it this way, has a capacity. You have a capacity to hold a certain amount of the Holy Spirit in you. Not, no, it's not an exact analogy, but you, you know what I'm saying. To some degree, the more we practice the things God tells us we can practice, the things that the greater your capacity to have more of the Holy Spirit in you. Because we talked about being, the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. Well, this person filled and this person filled have two totally different characters. But we have some degree of responsibility. It's not about works. We have some degree of responsibility in things we can do that increase the capacity of our souls to have more of the Holy Spirit in us, to make these things natural things of who we do, what we do. All right? Sometimes we may be, at the, we may be stuck at this point of life. And then, of course, then you have this. This is like Mother Teresa capacity, you know, that kind of thing. All right? But your, your souls, if I can say it this way, have capacity. If we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, there must be some capacity difference. You'll read the book of Acts and some of the the things these people accomplished who were uneducated, ordinary, non-religious people, they did incredible things for God because the Spirit was in them. They gave the Spirit maximum capacity to do things in their life. All right? And it's not just magic. I showed that Superman picture up there because I think sometimes what we, what we wish, and any of you under 25, you don't even know what a phone booth is, but in Superman... He walked into a phone booth, Clark Kent did. He was average, ordinary, boring guy. And then he comes out and he's transformed. We really wish God would just give us a phone booth. I just want to step in, do a couple things, have some music playing really loudly. And I want to step out and I want to do these things really easily. It doesn't happen that way. There's no magic in that. There's no ma- but there is there's grace and there's power because God does things in us but we have to cooperate with how those laws work, if I could say it that way. Just like I have to cooperate with the laws of how the body works if I want my body to get better with the exercises Tom gives me, all right? The soul's the same way. So today, I'm not going to talk about a specific discipline, but I'm going to talk about four assumptions that are going to be undergirding the next number of weeks because if you understand the assumptions, and the assumptions aren't, aren't just ideas, they're biblical kind of realities, but it kind of lays a groundwork for how this whole process happens, all right? So here's assumption number one. Assumption number one is this. The gospel is not just heaven. There's four assumptions. It's not just heaven after you die. There are some people that think, wrongly so, because the Bible doesn't teach it this way, that the gospel is trust Jesus and you go to heaven after you die. 
that is a byproduct of a relationship with God. But that's never what Jesus told people. He never told people, hey, trust me and you'll go to heaven after you die. And the rest of the life, just hold on and do your best. Jesus' message over and over when he said the gospel, and the gospel is, is the word meaning good news. He said over and over, the gospel was the kingdom of heaven is near. And what he meant was, he did not mean heaven is close by, so when you die, you'll go there. What he meant was the life you've always wanted, a conversational, interactive life with God is now possible for you ordinary people who've never thought it was possible for you. Over and over, if you read the Gospels, when Jesus said what he came to do, he said he came to pronounce that the kingdom of God was here and that God was now going to interact with human beings in a unique way that had never happened before. He never talked about, he talked about heaven, but he never uses that as, hey, if you just trust me, you'll go to heaven. If you don't, you'll go to the bad place. That was not the gospel. It's true. If you, if you grow in your life with God now in a conversational friendship with God, of course you'll spend eternity with God in the good place. And I say this because if you, just, if you simply think the gospel is, I believe, I go to heaven, then why should I care about my character growing? Why should I care about my soul expanding? I got my ticket. I got my ticket to heaven. I don't need anything else. But if the gospel is about you having a life-giving, life-changing relationship, conversational friendship with the God of the universe that Jesus said he came to open up, the gospel is about that, then your whole life is, is increasing conversational friendship with God, increasing ways where God can do incredible things in you and through you, and it changes the whole goal of Christianity because the goal is not simply to get people into heaven after they die. The goal is to get people full of, the, of God in this life. Even when we pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, your will be done in earth as it is on heaven, in heaven. What we're saying in that part of the prayer is, which maybe if you grew up saying that, what we're saying is, would the realities of how heaven works be part of earth and then be part of my life? Will that become part of me so I can be the kind of person that forgives my enemies, gives generously all the things that Jesus said we can do? That's what the gospel is. How do I become that kind of person? Second assumption. Jesus is brilliant. We often don't say that. And it often seems odd even to say it that way. Because um, we kind of put Jesus in the category of good moral teacher, good religious person, loved babies well, whatever. But if brilliance is the ability to handle life well, then there's nobody more brilliant than Jesus ever in the, in the whole history of humanity. I mean, we tend to think the brilliance, we kind of put the Albert Einsteins and those kind of people, but we don't think that brilliance really is the ability to master life. So Jesus mastered life well. He understood how to be merciful, generous, forgiving in a way that none of us can understand because it's like he was out of this world kind of forgiving. How could he forgive people when he's dying on the cross after being tortured and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. How could he do that? Where does that kind of strength come from? That's, br that's life brilliance. And I'm saying this because if Jesus is brilliant, if he mastered life, he lived life to the fullest capacity that God intended people to live, then what he tells us to do is something we need to listen to and follow. 
I mean, if I, I'll pick on Tom again. If I, did, if I thought Tom was stupid as a physical therapist, why would I do what he tells me to do? I'd be like, well, yeah, Tom told me to do that. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. So I'm going to go home and lay on the couch and hope my back gets better. All right? But he, I believe he's smart. He understands how the body works, so I will pay attention. Same thing if you go to a doctor. Same thing if you go to a car mechanic. Same thing if you go to where. You go to somebody who knows what they're talking about. We tend to do what they tell us because we trust that if we do what they tell us, positive things will happen. So if you don't believe that Jesus is brilliant, if you think there's someone else that's better for you to follow their, under, their philosophy of life, then follow somebody else. But Jesus is brilliant. He understood life. He understood relationships. He understood the challenge of money. He understood all kinds of temptations. He, he mastered life in a way that we'd all love to master life. That's assumption number two. Assumption number three is this. Jesus intends your obedience. If you read the Gospels, mainly uh, all over the place, but a lot in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus talks as if obedience was the crucial component of anybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus. Now let me stop there, because some of you, when I hear, say obedience, some of you might be hearing legalism. But change that translation in your head. Because that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, you better obey and you better do these things because that's what keeps your ticket to heaven valid. If you mess up, you lose your ticket. That's not obedience. But Jesus says, if you obey me, I will show myself to you and so will the Father. He'll reveal himself to you. If, you, if we obey, if we live life the way Jesus tells us to live life and avoid the things Jesus tells us to avoid... Jesus says, you're going to have an experience of me. You're going to, I'm going to reveal myself to you. You're going to know me in a way that you will not know me if you choose not to obey. So it, it puts obedience in a different category. Obedience is not, I mean, I, I grew up in an environment, in a church environment, where um, there were all kinds of do's and don'ts. I still remember talking to a girl at the lunch table one time, and I told her what church I went to. Oh, you go to that church that doesn't let you do anything. I thought, what a great definition of Christianity, right? I mean, I grew up in a church where if you went to movies in the theater, you weren't allowed to do any leadership in the church because that was wrong behavior. It was kind of like, it was kind of this weird obedience list. And so, you, and some of you may have had that same experience where church was, religion was all about, well, I got to obey, I got to do this, this, this. It was all about behaviors. And somehow those things we thought was obedience, but it really was just legalistic behavior, not unlike the Pharisees, just like the Pharisees, actually. The Pharisees, they obeyed all kinds of the commandments. But Jesus told them that their hearts were full of, like, dark, darkness. So even behaving correctly is not the goal of the Christian life. It's having a heart that's open and has a large capacity before God that will lead you to behave naturally in the way that God wants us to. But if you think Christianity is about just behaving correctly, and that's what obedience to you, that's not the gospel. That's not the Bible. You got that somewhere else, but it's not the Bible. But Jesus does intend our obedience because he knows if we obey, we put ourselves in a relationship with him where there's an experiential reality. He says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. You're going to know me in a way that you don't 
wouldn't know me otherwise. Next one, last one. And this maybe is, they're, they're all important. I'm not going to say it's most important. Christianity is a supernatural religion. And by that, I, I'm saying it's not, Christianity is not a moral religion. It's not a political religion. It's not simply a Western worldview religion. But Christianity is, at its core is about supernatural realities, supernatural change. And if Christianity is simply good teaching from a good man, then change doesn't really happen. Or it only happens because you think differently, but you could do that by going to IU or any, any college or school or high school. You can think differently. But Christianity, the Bible talks about over and over about transformation, about change, about how people who were once turned to darkness all of a sudden turned to light, about people who were enslaved to sin all of a sudden become different kind of people. And it's change that only happens when supernatural reality, i.e. the Spirit of God, works in my life. We talk about the grace of God. Well, what grace is, grace is God's activity in my life. So if I want more of the grace of God in my life, I don't necessarily, that doesn't mean God's going to give me good parking spaces at Kroger. I need grace. It's no, I want God to work in my life to bring about change that can't happen simply by my own human effort. Well, then you might say, wait a minute, but you're talking about human effort when you talk about fasting and giving and praying. But again, it's the kind of things, those, those things we do that put us in a place for supernatural realities for God to work in our life. I've used this analogy before, but now I'll pick on somebody else. Alan Meyer's an uh, endodontist. Is that right? Something has to do with dentistry, all right? If you see him, you're probably in pain. <laughs> so root canals. So I, if I have a root canal problem, which I haven't luckily yet in life, but if I do, there's three options. Option one is I try to fix it myself. I get on YouTube. There's probably really good YouTubes about this. <laughs> tools. Here's the tools you get. Figure it out. You know, and likely, way, probably, probably, I'll cause more damage, infection, and who, maybe death, who knows. Option two is I complain about my root canal. My wife tells me, well, just call Alan. I was like, no, I'm, I'm wa waiting for Alan to call me. Matter of fact, I want Alan to show up at the house and just do it right here. Well, he doesn't even know. No, I, I expect him to do this for me. Well, it's not going to happen. Option three is I make some active choices. I call, look up Alan's number, I call his office. I'm being active, I'm doing things. Alan gives me an appointment, I drive to his office, I'm active, I go in the door, I'm active. I go into the room where his chair is uh, sitting and I'm active, I'm doing things, I'm using effort. I sit in the chair, it's effort. I lay down, effort on my part, my effort. Alan says, open your mouth, I open my mouth. That takes effort on my part. At that point, you know what Alan says? Let me take it from here. I don't grab my hands and try to grab his wrists and, oh, no, right there, not there. I'm passive. I'm passive at that point. So I call this active passivity. I'm active to a point where I put myself in a situation where Alan can do the work in me. 
I'm not doing the work anymore, but I had to do something to put myself in that situation. That's what spiritual disciplines are. It's things we do that put ourselves in the situation where the Spirit of God can be active in our lives, can reveal things to us, can show us things, can heal things. So it's an active passivity that we, that we practice. So again, the next few weeks when we talk about prayer, fasting, reading the Bible, solitude, um, all kinds of habits, they're all things that put you in a situation where the Spirit of God has your attention in ways that don't normally happen in the everyday things of life. So we'll finish with this passage on the screen up here because um, this will kind of overarch a lot of what we're talking about. Those who, this is Jesus in John 14. Those who accept my commands and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. So again, it puts obedience in a whole different category. It's not about just earning favor, earning points with God. It's, it's about a relational relationship of love where God reveals himself to you. And what's interesting is around this passage in John 14, Jesus talks about, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, this invisible reality that is the primary tool of the activity of God in our lives. And so he says, you obey, and the Holy Spirit kind of is a result. And when you obey, you're putting yourself in a situation where the Holy Spirit has your ear in a way he doesn't otherwise, and change and transformation, and your character begins to grow in the capacity for the Spirit of God to do things in and through your life. So uh, that's why we obey. That's why in the next few weeks, like, we'll talk about all these habits, but that's why we're going to talk about it. And I'm, I'm, there are times I might even give you suggested homework. Like, hey, this week, pick two meals you're going to fast from. And here's how I want you to think about it. Or, hey, pray in a way this week you haven't done otherwise. Try this. I'm, nothing, nothing's going to be weird. I'm not, not going to ask you to go stand on the courthouse steps and pray out loud or anything. But they're all things that, I, that, I, that whether from Scripture or from godly men and women who've read Scripture, that say, you do these things, you put yourself in a place where God can have a hold of your ears in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. So let's pray, and then we'll take communion this morning. <clears throat> Jesus, we, uh, there's not one of us here that it doesn't have at least one thing in our life that we which was changed. Not circumstantial. I'm not talking about that, God. I'm talking about the character things. Things about our character, things about whether we feel like we whether it's patience or money issues or relational issues or sexual issues, all kinds of things that we feel like are holding us back from being the person we know you made us to be, full of life and power that come from you. There's not one of us that doesn't want some change in our life. So God, I pray even over these next weeks, um, they change us. We want to be large capacity vessels for your Holy Spirit. And we know that doing so we, requires us to do things that are outside of our comfort zone and habits that um, maybe are foreign to us, but they're all things that open up our hearts to you. We want to be those kind of people because we want to be a part of changing the world and introducing the world to the 
forgiveness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the power to heal that Jesus has, the generosity of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. We want to be tools and instruments to introduce that Jesus to the rest of the world around us, to Bloomington, to our families, friends, and neighbors. And uh, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, We finish every week uh, with communion.